hate the rich Neolibs are a bitch Medicare for all Bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello, and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I'm Kate Willett. I'm Julia Clare. This has, like, barely felt like a comedy podcast for a few weeks, just because there's been a lot going on. and it There's been a lot going on. Yeah. We're, we're sorry, but also we can't control the world, unfortunately. And the world is simply not funny right now. Um, well, and, yeah. We're doing our best, folks. <laughs> um, so, you know, we are re- recording in, in New York. Um, this week was, you know, it was a big one. Uh, the curfew was in place until uh, Sunday. It was the, the curfew was uh, repealed. And uh, yeah, that I think that's that's very good uh, that the curfew was repealed because that was just an excuse for them to like lock a lot of... Uh, protesters who are otherwise behaving in a completely uh, legal manner in jail and you know i say that not to like privilege the expression of like you know quote unquote like peaceful protesters over anybody else but uh, just to make the point that the curfew was a reason to arrest people only uh and to have kind of like mass police brutality so that's good um i don't know de blasio just fucked up so bad here it's it really is uh it it just kept getting worse and worse i you know it it was like watching a a car crash everything i don't know and the thing is he kept trying to like save face with with new yorkers um <laughs> and, and he announced that the curfew would be lifted on sunday i think um and he was like we've seen what the very best of new york has to offer or something like that last night and saturday was a big protest day there were a lot all over the city in all the boroughs um and i was like dude most of the most of what we saw at those protests were people repeatedly calling for your resignation (laughs) Oh yeah. I marched on Saturday in from um Grand Army Plaza in Park Slope to uh like across the Brooklyn Bridge to um into Manhattan. And most of the way this is this was like one of the funny things. Most of the way there I was walking next to this guy who was by himself who looked like uh, just your run-of-the-mill lax bro, like, holding a Black Lives Matter sign, wearing sandals the whole way, which we walked so long, I don't know how he was wearing sandals, but he was. And he had, like, a backwards hat on and uh, shorts, and that's how I know that we're winning hearts and minds, because uh, someone who looked like they go to the University of Alabama was... <laughs> was marching next next to me by himself uh yeah didn't you say that you expected him to start chanting roll tide and yeah. <laughs> yeah 
was like really he was yeah he was very very earnest too also i was so impressed because i feel like every 500 feet of the route people were handing out water bottles and hand sanitizer and uh there were people mercifully who had sunscreen for all the white people i saw who got sunburned <laughs> that is racial unity right there <laughs> that is racial unity <laughs> Uh, sunscreen for racial unity um yeah and it was just like there were people who had like carts full of individually wrapped pre-prepared sandwiches and things like that was wild uh i don't know it was just such a cool experience um and it also like poured rain for like 10 minutes right when we started marching and that was it was again it was really brief the uh the weather was all over the place but that was a very cool mo- moment to kind of be in it together with everyone to just all of a sudden be soaked <laughs> um yeah but people were i mean people in the communities were like honking and waving out the window. Some people who had stopped were like standing on top of their cars and chanting with us. It was really cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. What was your experience like? Um, I I participated in a few different marches last week. Um, I definitely noticed that by Sunday, uh, there was, and it sounds like this was true on Saturday as well, uh, there was a huge kind of de-escalation with the police. Like, it, it was like there was clearly some kind of call where they said, you know, don't arrest as many people. Uh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. the police definitely, I, there was a, you know, on on Friday night, Thursday night, Wednesday, they were just arresting a ton of people and like kettling everybody. And um, you know, I, I think Tuesday night was the night that they kettled all of those people on the Manhattan mm-hmm. Bridge. Um, and uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, it was just it, it was definitely a different tone. I think. I mean, and look, of course, like obviously, I realize my experience with the police will consistently be different. Um, right. I'm just talking about like the number of arrests in general. Uh, yeah, there, there, there seems to be, uh, you know, some kind of uh, de-escalation coming from the top. You know, which like I don't know why uh, De Blasio is not smart enough to have like figured out to do that earlier. Because I mean, they lost. I think the NYPD lost a lot of support. I mean, it's like all these people are protesting police brutality. And then there's just all these videos of the NYPD doing police brutality everywhere all the time to people who Mm -hmm. are just marching. So, yeah, it was a very different tone by Saturday. I think Um, one of I was towards the front of the line, uh, the front of the procession i guess um and one of the black organizers went over to the police and was talking to them about something but what was so funny is that he was he had one arm leaning against one of their cruisers and was like lounging on the cruiser talking to them and i thought that that was such a fun power move (laughs) 
like the cool teacher in high school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who like pulls their chair around and sits on it backwards. That's how Jake talks to the cats. <laughs> when he talks to the cats about drugs, he does that. Sorry, weird tangent. Sorry, I no intention to be disrespectful. We're going to uh, talk about the original rapper, William Shakespeare. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so speaking of all this you know we talked on the show about uh your uh former cop dad what kinds of conversations have you been having with him about these these protests so it's uh yeah it's 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 an ongoing conversation that i have with him a lot like every every time something like this happens and i think he is, you know, he's not a a Blue Lives Matter guy, which is which I I, th- I thank God for that he is at least like the minute the George Floyd video r- was released, you know, he said that cop should be tried, like should be arrested and and charged with murder, um, because it's I mean. <laughs> Anyone who saw that video, I think, would would say that. That's not even giving my dad that much credit. And it is very frustrating in it uh, to speak with him about about a lot of this because both of my parents and my mom is a nurse, and both my parents are like mainstream media news poison brain about the looting in particular. Like that is they they bring that up. They both bring that up a lot. But my dad is is definitely someone who like believes that like i think like a lot of of white people of his age <laughs> believe that that this can just be fixed with with additional training um my dad's my dad was a police officer in a small like a small community uh you know he never fired his gun in 30 years on the job it's it's like a lot of those small town community police you're just kind of like a hall monitor i think that that's how i think of a lot of those small town cops you uh, should get your dad to become woke you can be a hall monitor all the time i mean (laughs) Yeah, if he doesn't know that from me by now that I am a glorified hall monitor, I don't I I haven't been doing my job. Um but no, like my dad my dad really just thinks that like because his police department in particular did like 400 hours of training a year or something like that, like constantly doing like in-service training about de-escalation and all this stuff. Uh but they also were not you know Every department is different, and they were not a department that was like an all white department police they weren't an all white department to begin with, but they they weren't like a lot of these depart all white departments or majority white departments policing ma- majority minority communities so I just think that like I mean he's like a boomer and a former cop and like and, and I do feel a certain amount of shame for being ashamed of the fact that, like, he was a cop because at the end of the day, like, he worked 70 hours a week to give us a middle-class life. And, uh... But it's something that I've been wrestling with 
a lot and um I don't have any good takeaways from it yet. I just try to talk to him about it every day. And I do get him to agree with me more often than not. But I also just think that he has only ever kind of lived in communities where police function as like a tool of quote unquote community service or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people I saw um, on Facebook and other social media asking what would defunding the police look like. And in some cases it like, it might look like the police already look in your rich white community, right. you know, like, right. I mean, the goal is, you know, total abolition, at least, you know, um, that's, that's how I feel about it. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, definitely where I grew up uh, in the suburbs and stuff, I didn't really have a lot of just people did not really interact with police officers very much at all. The I mean, I mean, and the community where I grew up is even smaller and whiter than the community where my dad grew up and where he was a police officer. Um, and when I was growing up, the only interaction we had with police was kind of when we were somewhere we weren't supposed to be or and or basically like breaking up high school parties yeah yeah definitely that was a lot of it yeah um i definitely had a few high school parties broken up by we we had the sheriff's department not even official cops i'm sure that they had a huge complex about not being real cops (laughs) well the yeah i don't i don't really know the difference honestly i don't either i like I don't know. I have my mom. My mom really got on me because she uh, I made uh, I made a a shameful return back to back to Facebook to just like post about I hadn't posted on Facebook in so long and um, in probably like a year. And I posted about about the fact that a lot of people have been asking me, like, what do you think about all this? Like this anti-cop sentiment with the fact that you're your dad was a cop for 30 years. Does that offend you? It's like, absolutely not. What offends me is innocent black people being murdered by white cops. Yeah. That's what offends me. And like, we, you know, we, we talked about this with Jabari last week is that we shouldn't be holding teachers, public school teachers to a higher standard of conduct than we hold our police officers who have guns. And, I've just, I've really been wrestling with, like, you know, as you can hear from the fact that I'm speaking about this so inarticulately, I've, I've been wrestling with this, but all, all I can do is, like, continue to talk to my dad about this, and, you know, I'm grateful that he is as kind of on the level about most things as, as he is. I think it, this would be, I, I don't know if I'd be able to, like, talk to him if he were uh, a blue lives matter or an all lives matter guy. <laughs> yeah, I had to uh I had to stop talking to a family member after 2016 um specifically because she voted for Trump because she thought that like Black Lives Matter was a terrorist organization or some like in, just some, it truly insane bullshit and you know made me really mad but it also made me realize that what they're telling people on fox news is just has nothing to do with reality you know oh it's i mean yeah it's 
it's lunacy. And I think, you know, we've seen that the president called for Antifa to be classified as a terrorist organization. <laughs> Which it's and not an organization. It's not an organization at all. Uh, but also, but that is literally a way to try to make Black Lives Matter into, like, to classify them as a terrorist organization. Um, which he can't do because that would look too obvious. But it's like, Nixon would do this shit all the time. Like, with... This is, like, straight out of out of his playbook with kind of indirectly trying to squelch different groups. Um, and... Yeah, I don't know. My mom also said that my Facebook post made it sound like I hate cops. And I was like, okay, well... <laughs> I don't know, mom. Uh, no comment. <laughs> I also think that, like, I I have a lot of my own personal gripes about cops that I think I you're think like, only only comes with being the the kid of a cop. Uh, you're like cops always ground you. Yeah, uh, cops are really grumpy on on the one family vacation you get to take every five years, but. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Could, I know. I, I, I mean, I think it's great that you're communicating with your dad about stuff. I, my mom, uh, my mom supports the protests and stuff. Like, I think she even has her mind wrapped around the looting. But you know, she's she's definitely like a white boomer. Like, she was like, she sent me after Jake went to jail. She sent me a picture. You're, like Gloria Steinem and I'm like mom what does this have to do that's so funny <laughs> yeah she's like what does this have to do with anything um but I, I feel I like white white boomer ladies who were like involved in the in second wave feminism just have so many like gifts and pictures of Gloria Steinem locked and loaded ready to send Gloria for, Steinem who for, worked for the CIA yeah for any situation yeah I love that um yeah yeah, um, my my mom is my mom is tough too. She's I don't know, like both my parents have only ever lived in majority white communities and it's it's just like their worldview is very tied up in that and it it's something that I, I don't know, trying to like make my parents unlearn their lifetime of <laughs> bad takes is uh it's it's the work of my life but um but you know, a lot of i mean yeah i mean i'm gonna continue because i know that i have made a lot of headway with my dad about so many other issues also i brought this up to my dad the other day i'm like dad one of your favorite movies is do the right thing do you know what that movie is about <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, you know who's another white boomer that uh, has really been disappointing? Joe Biden. Joseph R. Biden? Yeah. Um, I mean, his response to this has just been shameful. I mean, which is to be expected. He has a lifetime of uh, being even, you know, he, he has a lifetime of being far to the right of even the Democratic Party um, mm -hmm. on uh, issues of criminal justice or criminal justice isn't even the right word because joe biden has supported the 
uh, incarceration of many people who I, I don't think should be criminalized at all, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he had this incredible comment about how, you know, we needed to chew people in the leg instead of the heart. Oh, my God. I um, remember that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and he's also called for more funding during the police for more funding for the police during this time. I mean, like for read, for yeah, for like training resources and which just throwing more money at the problem as we have seen time and time again does not help the nypd's budget is six billion dollars well and also it's like the thing is is you know the police and i'm probably gonna do a pretty bad job making this point so i'll link some resources in the comments you know as well but i mean the police have a job to uh deal with things um in a certain way you know which is like kind of inherently violent like they're the people who show up and use force and yeah there are probably you know some police officers who don't use uh excessive force as as often or you know maybe haven't you know ever but like structurally the job is to uh to try to solve things by using force it's not like a social worker like we talked about with mm-hmm. like you know jabari last week um you know it's just there there are just so many situations that police do not need to be involved in at all that are just not helped uh by by violence you know whatsoever like um i was reading in the end of policing last night about um you know how many people with mental illness the cops kill every year you know just people calling the police because um they need you know help with their you know mentally ill child uh you know who's maybe having an episode of some kind and then the cops show up and shoot them you know i mean it's just there's no and and you know the reason could be because it's like the the person who is having you know some kind of episode might be like holding a knife or whatever and police are trained to you know if somebody's holding a weapon okay like you you know uh, tackle that person or you shoot them or whatever but it's you know it's like that's not violence is not the way to uh respond to that situation and that's not how you know psychiatric professionals are gonna respond to that situation or, or nurses you know and um I mean, there's just it's there's not there's no amount of training that is going to uh, turn a police officer into somebody that has the ability to respond to sensitive situations with expertise. Mm. You know, um, there's there's a different person that's more appropriate for that. And and yeah, Joe Biden just sucks. He really sucks. He's pretty bad uh, yeah. on. Yeah. And you know this is something again we talked about last week but the reallocation of those resources to people like social workers or specialists who again it's like a complete reimagination of what public safety will be and yeah i would love to see social workers and teachers get those kind of salaries that that cops can get in uh in this country um yeah we should say too i guess you know bernie has kind of been not great on this stuff either uh yeah bernie uh 
also, I mean, definitely better than Biden, but in his statement, he also called for uh, police officers to get, to get higher salaries. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it was, my uh, dude, come on, Bernie. come on, man. Yeah, sometimes he's very old and white. Sometimes he's, and you know, he should be better on that stuff. I, I don't feel the need to, like, stand Bernie anymore. I mean, like, I don't know. People on Twitter will be like, you know, oh, look, Bernie said this. And we're like, yeah, we're like really mad at him already. Like we, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't, we're not standing him anymore. But yeah, the, again, the, the revolution is bigger, is bigger than him. Uh, but what I will say about Bernie is that both he and AOC this weekend endorsed two of our former guests. Oh, yay. Uh, Charles Booker, who's running for Senate in Kentucky, and Mondaire Jones, who is running for Congress in New York's 17th district. Uh, so I'm very excited about, about that. You should go back and listen to their interviews if you haven't already, because we really loved talking to both of them. And um, Charles Charles Booker especially is, like, blowing up. He is getting a lot of attention lately in a way that I think is is really cool as the um, – as the better alternative to the uh centrist army lady what is her name again amy mcgrath amy mcgrath centrist army lady um who said that she wants trump to be able to do his job uh oh that lady sucks um yeah well listen to those episodes um yeah just um it's really a pleasure to talk to them. And um yeah, uh oh, I guess we should say that, you know, uh New York repealed uh 50A this morning, um which uh is is good uh because now people have uh access to uh police disciplinary records. Um Yeah, which is- 50A was the statute that basically sealed all record of police misconduct uh, from the public. And New York also, I mean, I think it was, this was last week, uh, prohibited the use of uh, of chokeholds as a which, as a disciplinary method by police, which is a real fucking no-brainer. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, sh- how was that not a law already? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, I mean, you know, um, there that has chokeholds were already prohibited in um minneapolis this doesn't these these like reform measures you know they don't necessarily uh have the have the impact of you know that you want them to of police like following this stuff so i don't know but i mean as as the protests go on, just more stuff starts to change. I mean, Minneapolis uh, said that they, you know, they voted to disband their police department, which I want to be really excited about. But let's wait and see what they replace it with. You know, it could be uh, something very, very similar. I don't know. Uh, or just another police department. I don't know. But it's it's definitely having an impact. Yeah, we... You know, protesters went to, in Minneapolis, protesters went to the mayor's home, outside the mayor's home, and directly asked him last week before this was passed, uh, do you support the defunding of police? And he, and they were like, give us a yes or no answer. And they, the, 
the organizer who was kind of had the, had the megaphone was like, and just remember that you're up for re-election this year. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. I love that video. And he still said, uh, yeah, he said no. And then everyone started yelling, fuck you. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I do have some. I think people are really. I think this is kind of a watershed moment. And, you know, people like Angela Davis are saying that this is that she really feels like the tide is turning. And that is a woman who has been kind of on the front lines of these issues. The woman who kind of like almost originated the idea of abolishing the police. So I. I really I I do want to have. Not not optimism per se, but just like a belief that that maybe this is the moment where things will change. And I think that everyone's eyes are on this issue because we have nowhere else to go still. <laughs> um. So let's get into our interview. And uh, we recorded this a few weeks ago. Um. So it is very. There's a lot of focus on coronavirus uh, and how the government will respond to coronavirus, which feels like, you know, it's still really relevant, but it feels like a thing that's kind of like, I don't know, it's just it's just shifted out of our attention in some ways as uh, we have become more focused on these protests. But this is still a really good conversation um, with an awesome candidate from New Jersey, R.T. Krybik. And um, yeah, she was really great to talk to. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope you hope you like this interview and uh, we will see you next week. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, stay safe, everybody. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. We are lucky enough this week to be joined by Artie Krybeck, who is running for Congress in New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Artie. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We are super excited to get to talk to you. Um, tell us a little bit about your district. So I'm running for Congress in New Jersey's 5th District. It's in North Jersey, and like many districts, it's gerrymandered. So we're this top strip that's an upside-down L, roughly from about the George Washington Bridge um, in the east, the New York border, all the way out to the Pennsylvania border in the west and and down south a little bit. Um, And it's suburban and rural and spans about four counties. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what. We've had a lot of people running for Congress um, on the show so far, and I don't think we've had a single person uh, running say not say that their district is heavily gerrymandered. Yeah. Pretty yeah. much everybody who comes on says, my district makes no sense, and we love it. Well, we hate, we hate gerrymandering, but... This is yeah. why the census is so important, and this is why it's so important to make sure that we have the right people, even on the state legislature. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, what inspired you to want to run for Congress? Um. So I will say that I never thought I was going to get into politics in this way. Anybody who does think they're going to get into politics tends to be a sociopath. So it's a really positive sign in your favor. Great, great start. (laughs) That is totally fair. Um, 
I always wanted to be a scientist. That was the thing I wanted to do since I was little. Um, it was my big rebellion, by the way, because my parents, my mom especially, wanted me to be a real doctor. Um, and I said, no, I am going to rebel. I am going to have a PhD. I've gotten a little bit better at rebelling since then. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Wow. Not even a cigarette or, I, you know, like, um, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting because, you know, you definitely don't see uh, science going with our government very often. So it'd be interesting to see what happened if we uh, combined people who believe in science with a, a government. So, you know, in favor so far. I know it's mind boggling, right? Like, I mean, I mean, I'll tell you when I was getting my PhD and, when I, you know, thought about being a scientist and in, you know, all my 45 years of being here. Um, I thought the hardest thing was going to be doing the experiments and talking about the research and, you know, really breaking down the complex questions. Not that I have to convince people that science is real and that we should be following the data, especially in the middle of a public health crisis and a pandemic that we're in. Really never yeah. thought that this is where it would be. Yeah, it's really weird that, like, science has become such a contentious issue. I mean, it has been on climate change uh, for, you know, a long time now. Um, you know, definitely... I, there was definitely a point when, like, Republicans were in favor of some kind of climate action as well. But, I mean, it's just, it's been very chilling to see how that anti-science sentiment has, uh, you know, um, combined with, uh, has just, uh, like, sort of informed the COVID response, rather, you know? Like, it's just, uh, yeah, just seeing people, like, put signs on their businesses that, like, no masks are allowed, you know? It's just what the hell are you guys doing, you know? Yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, what the hell? I mean, we we start off, with, particularly with this pandemic, right? So we knew what was coming. I mean, the rest of the world was getting there before us. It's not like, you know, we don't have things like the internet where we can, you know, Google things and understand what's happening in the rest of the world. So we all saw what was happening. We all saw what was happening in Italy, even, you know, just a few weeks before um, it came to us. Um, there were articles about Iran, and at that time, because they weren't quarantining, um, you know, their their rates, their fatality rates. I remember there was an Atlantic article that came out, um, was something like twenty percent. We saw how bad it was, um, and then we started, you know, having more and more folks um, in the U.S. getting this, and the response was just, you know, nothing. Right? It was completely being unprepared for this, and it's particularly frustrating and really outrageous, right? I mean, I get so angry when I think about it and I have been so angry about this for so long because it wasn't that you didn't see it coming. It wasn't that you didn't know that people were going to die. It's the fact that we have more than 100,000 people who are dead and a majority of them, in my opinion, unnecessarily uh, because yeah. of the kind of thing. Because, you know, we have an administration that muzzles scientists. We literally have scientists and experts saying what was going to happen, knowing what was going to happen. Um, and folks are muzzling scientists, completely ignoring them. Um, you know, we dismantled the pandemic response unit um, years ago, uh, and we continue to do this. And it is mind-boggling why we are at a point where we can do that and why we don't have more people standing up and saying, no, this is wrong. Um, this is what the science is telling us. This is what the data is telling us, especially our elected officials. And this is what we should be doing moving forward. So, yeah. And, um, we're recording this 
on Friday. Today's Friday, right? Today's Friday. Um, I don't Do know. Do we what know? Day it is. I, I don't know. I don't There's know. no time anymore. I absolutely missed a meeting at work uh, this week, and my only excuse was, I'm sorry, I didn't know what day it was. Um, but about 25, 30 minutes ago, uh, President Trump announced that the U.S. will be terminating its relationship with the World Health Organization. Yeah. Um, oh, I did not see that yet. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of anti-science sentiment, obviously, it it's a, it's a top-down response very much right now. And, you know, I can see... Yeah, I mean, y- you must know this having having studied a lot of this yourself, but obviously, like, science, op- of course, science changes, and so much of science is trying to prove, like, you know, prove existing formulas and existing um, m- circumstances wrong, or it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's ever evolving, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we know to be true. It doesn't, you know, as you said, we saw this coming. I, I work uh, at a university and they brought the kids, the kids who were studying abroad in Italy, they brought them home a long time ago. Uh, so we knew what was coming. We just, I honestly, the president has treated this like this pandemic like an inconvenience and that's about it just an annoyance like he has not taken it seriously from the first day and he of course is out there golfing not wearing a mask not social distancing and you know it's had kind of reverberating repercussions because there are a lot of people who a lot of his supporters who take his lead who say the president isn't wearing a mask the president isn't social distancing when i see him in press briefings and things like that so i'm not going to do it either yeah and this downplaying of something that is quite fatal um this downplaying of the kind of repercussions that we could have is i mean we see that it's dangerous and he's doing it because he's selfish uh, and because he's concerned more about his poll numbers than actual lives. And the fact that we don't have more people in Congress, the fact that we don't have more elected leaders who are calling that out is completely outrageous. This is exactly what you're supposed to be doing, right? We have checks and balances for a reason. And this is just the pattern that we've had for the amount of years that he's been president. And I think it's completely outrageous. I mean, you know, I particularly with the PPE and um frontline healthcare workers, I mean, that's personal because my husband is a physician at a hospital. Um, he works at the hospital that was worst hit um, in North Jersey. And in, in where we are in Bergen County, we were the worst hit for, you know, a number of weeks for actually the majority of the time that we had the peak um, in cases in New Jersey. Um, and so for me, it was, you know, my family, my friends that were out there um, and my colleagues that I knew were, who were out there doing this in New York City and elsewhere with no protection. I mean, at one point, the hospital that my husband um, works in had only about four days worth of PPE that was left. And we were going around scrambling to donate money to find suppliers. I mean, it's outrageous that we have people sewing cloth masks for mm. nurses. This is not where we should ever be in this country. Um, and the fact is, you know, the second wave is real. We're, we're probably going to have it. The extent at which the states are going to be 
seeing the second wave, this resurgence as we kind of rush to reopen um, states with no regard for social distancing, with no real plan in some places about what this means, um, is really dangerous, especially with the coming you know flu season, especially with um, this rush to open up schools um, and this and this very um, terrible idea where folks are you know going around saying, well, this is not as bad. It's just as bad as the flu. It's not. I mean, it's, it's demonstrably wrong. <laughs> that is that's absolutely wrong for folks to say. Um, or things like, oh, well, kids don't get it. So it shouldn't be a big deal, which shows a real lack of understanding of, you know, germ theory, how germs um, are transmitted, which I think we're, you know, we're frankly better than that. And I think doubling down on this does nobody a service. I, yeah, and I I mean, I completely agree. Here's one thing that has been feeling like, you know, sort of strange to me. And I, I think that there is like, the right wing has sort of taken this and run with it in a very terrible way. But I feel like at this point, I don't actually, I don't, I, f- I don't feel like I know what the plan is. Like, I don't mean just like with reopening, like, I feel like I don't really, I don't know like what the government is trying to do. Like, you know, what are our goals for managing the pandemic? Like, how are they trying to save lives at the beginning? And still people were talking about increasing testing but it seems like there's still not enough and that there's no plan to get enough and then you know there's I've seen the idea that we'll kind of like open up for a little while and then lock down again I've seen people say that we'll you know stay sort of social distancing until a vaccine is widely available um, which could be years from now or potentially never and I you know I don't like these like super hardcore reopened right now people I mean, it's obviously we cannot do that. We can't just sacrifice people's lives for Wall Street. But at the same time, you know, it is very emotionally challenging to be in, uh, you know, in isolation if you're lucky enough to to still have a job, which many people are out of work. And, you know, I, I don't know really what what the kind of goals for this are. And I feel like that is because um, the you know our leaders like do not know you know um and i was wondering like let's say uh you are elected to congress what do you think that a good covid response looks like that is responsible yeah no those are really good points right uncertainty is really hard to deal with um it's really hard to deal with on you know on a regular basis and then in the middle of this crisis where we're really just in you know survival mode it's even worse right um, and, and so I totally get why people, I mean, I um, feel the urge to go out and do things, right? I totally get it. I totally get why everyone feels this way. And especially for folks who are out of jobs, who need to make rent, who need to, you know, make the mortgage, who need to just be able to eat. Uh, I think all of those things are really, really important that we take care of those folks, right? So for me, the, uh, the COVID response, the way we should have had it, we should have stockpiled PPE long time ago, not have expired PPE in our, you know, in our national stockpiles. I mean, that's just a basic point right there. Um, but once we knew what was coming, what we needed to do and what we still need to do to ramp up is testing. We need testing. We need tracing. We need isolation, right? Those are the three things that we know work really well. We know that the only thing that works is um, social distancing, isolating if you have it, 
um, wearing masks so that you reduce, you know, the transmission, not that you're not doing anything, but that you are going to reduce the transmission or the risks of transmitting. Um, those are things that we know. So we need elected leaders to actually model that behavior, right? In all different levels. I mean, at a council level, I'm an um, elected you know, local official at a council member, at the council member level, we try and model that behavior. We try and make sure that folks know in town that, hey, you know, if I'm going out, I'm always wearing a mask because you know who I am. And I know that when I'm going into a store, yes, no one can force me um, to do this. Yes, it's an executive order without teeth um, in it in some ways. Um, but we do model that behavior. And the fact that we don't have elected leaders who do it is problematic, right? Um, when we talk about putting resources into testing, it's not just the antibody tests, it's also the PCR tests. It's also making sure that we are following people over time to see, because we don't know how many people are asymptomatic um, and you know are spreading it. And that's really the crux of the matter. Right. So we need to make sure that we do that. We need to make sure that we isolate. Um, we, but folks are not going to isolate if they're worried about their jobs. Right. So if I test positive and I'm really worried and I need to get to my work and I need that to survive, if I don't have paid sick leave, how could I possibly you know, be able to isolate for 14 days or, you know, and, and do what I need to do, right? So we need to have that social safety net. We need to have universal paid sick leave. We need to make sure that people are not afraid of going to the doctor. We need to make sure that they don't feel like, hey, $75 for an antibody test. I don't know. I could get a month's worth of groceries there. So I'm going to go do that instead, right? So we need to make sure the testing is free. We need to make sure, I mean, this is why we need to have expanded healthcare coverage. Because one of the things that we don't talk about, right, with COVID-19, so we talk about folks who are um, unfortunately dead. And that is, you know, that that is really heartbreaking. We talk, but we don't talk enough about folks who are recovering, who are really sick. And so we have a lot of long-term consequences that we really haven't even thought about. And so, you know, folks with lung scarring are, might need long-term help. Um, people who have permanent kidney failure, um, folks who have long-term mobility issues, all of that, we need to take care of them. And how are they going to pay their medical bills? How are they going to have the health care that they need to survive? This And this is going to continue to happen. Um, and this is something that we need to think about as a society. So if we want to have a more sustainable, more resilient future, we need people who are implementing policies that strengthen our social safety net so that we can actually take care of each other and ourselves. And, you know, the reality is we talk about climate crisis, we talk about the Green New Deal, we talk about all that. The reality is this pandemic, as shocking as it is, is not the only thing. With the climate crisis, we know we're going to have more public health crises coming down the pipe. We need people in Congress, we need people in policymaking decisions who not only understand that, who not only acknowledge that, but are far thinking enough to say, yes, let's prepare for that right now. And let's make sure that we don't let anyone fall through the cracks because at the end of the day, it's the entire society that's going to suffer. And we're seeing that already. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you were talking about like the sort of long term consequences for COVID, you know, I was thinking in some like in some plans I've seen, it, it sort of seems like even though we're going to be spreading the cases out over time in an ideal world, let's say people continue social distancing, like the basically like the plan is for somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of us to get COVID-19. And 
I think that makes me feel like sort of a, a sense of despair. Like, wait, I'm I'm going to be I'm not going to see my friends for two years and I still have to get COVID. <laughs> you know, like this isn't even to prevent me from getting it. So I, I don't know. I mean, is is that the way that it will really that, you know, it'll really shake down with that many of us getting it? No, I think so. The So the herd immunity, you know, point is that we need to have, you know, 60, we think about 60 to 80% of us be immune to it in some way, shape or form. Ideally, that happens with vaccination, right? Ideally, that that's what, um, you know, happens so that we can all get vaccinated so we can all have that, you know, level of immunity um, to that. So that's why we have these international consortium. Um, that have been working since actually January um, to get a vaccine in place. And, you know, look, I remain hopeful that that's going to happen sooner rather than later. Yes, it's probably the earliest we are looking at is a year. Um, But this is why things like what Trump is doing is so dangerous when he walks away from the WHO, right? Because the WHO has had a robust um, plan, robust clinical trials they're putting together. Because at the end of the day, science is a global, especially a scientific response to a global pandemic, needs to be global. We can't Mm. have this, like, you know, PS nationalism on you know, we are just going to make this vaccine in America for Americans. It doesn't work that way. Science doesn't work that way. Medical research doesn't work that way. And we're completely doing a disservice to folks in America when we do that. And it seems like from, I mean, I'm no expert, but it seems like from a lot of the reading I've been doing that it's actually sort of somewhat unlikely that the vaccine would be developed in the United States. It seems like uh, there's other countries that are, much better at producing vaccines than we are. I don't know. It seems like India, a lot of vaccines come out of India and, you know, also China. Um, Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And, so. and that's exactly what's been happening, right? We've been collaborating, um, you know, labs in America have been collaborating internationally and as they've done in the past um, and continued their research. I mean, there's so many folks who have really just moved their focus onto COVID-19 and making sure this vaccine research goes ahead. And that's what we should be fostering. Right. And I will say, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, right wingers want to reopen now. Um, but I also lay the blame on folks who don't put the responsibility where it needs to be put, um, who does who don't call out Trump, who don't say that this is why um, this is as bad as it is. And it's really important to do. It's not just finger pointing. Right. It's actually really important to do because we can pinpoint uh, why our response has not been adequate to date and why it's going to continue to not be adequate, why it's going to continue to, you know, give us a short shrift. And so we need to actually mobilize and make sure that we're doing everything we can. And I will tell you, my opponent has been one of those folks. Um, You know, when the pandemic happened, it was an op-ed that he wrote, that he co-wrote, where he said that the pandemic is mother nature and that no one American can be blamed. Um, for this response. And I 100% disagree with that. I There's absolutely one person that I blame for the lack of our preparedness for this. Because yes, a pandemic, a virus, you know, is occurring. You know, that you can't predict. Our response to it, absolutely you could predict. Our response mm. to it could absolutely have been prepared for. And when we talk about what we need to do now moving forward, it's really to concentrate on helping the most amount of people as possible, right? It's, it's to make sure that when we have those relief packages that are coming out, we are making focusing on people, that we are focusing on making sure that we are taking care of people so that they have that comfort of knowing, 
you know, their unemployment um, check is in the mail or is in their bank account, ideally already, um, that they don't have to worry about rent um, this month. Ideally, we're giving them $2,000 a month until the pandemic crisis is over. Ideally, we are expanding that paid sick leave so they can stay at home and not infect everybody else um, and actually get better. So all of those things are crucial. And it's mind boggling to me that we are not doing more of it. I completely agree. Um, And you also, you mentioned your opponent before the show, we were talking, uh, and you mentioned that part of the reason you decided to run is because your opponent is taking uh, tons of donations from corporations. Uh, Was there anything else you wanted to kind of say about that or how it's influencing his uh, voting or policy choices? Yeah, I mean, so he, (laughs) he has a D after his name. Um, and I supported him in 2016 when we were flipping this district, reluctantly supported him in 2018. Um, but his voting record has been, you know, has been just to undermine Democratic policies. So he's one of the few who voted for border wall funding. Uh, he's voted to gut Dodd-Frank regulations. Um, he is the number two recipient of um, money from uh, donations from Wall Street and the real estate sector. Um, he's uh, behind Kevin McCarthy and ahead of Paul Ryan in that. Um, and corporate PAC money is really, you know, and corporate donations are really at the center of his policies and who he lobbies for. So even with the pandemic, a few weeks ago, um, New York Times article, Huffington Post article detailing this, he was the only member of Congress who came out to lobby for private equity firms that deal with predatory lending. Um, so folks who, that, so firms that have really vast reserves of cash, I mean, billions of dollars, who are out there to, you know, essentially saddle small companies with debt, um, take their profits and kind of, you know, push small companies away. Um, And he lobbied to make sure that they were able to get um, treasury-backed loans. So loans that we as taxpayers back um, as part of the COVID relief package. So essentially, he was lobbying to make sure that Wall Street had more profits in their their pocket and that small businesses um, are really open to the big bad wolf coming back um, to gobble them up, uh, even more so than they would be. Um, and thankfully, it didn't work. Um, but the chief lobbyist for this group happened to be his campaign donor, one of his campaign donors, who's given all $14,000 um, to my opponent. Direct line from who the donors are and what his vote uh, and what my opponent's votes are. And this is not somebody who's representing most of my district. This is not somebody who's actually planning on helping small businesses in my district. This is not somebody who's planning on helping, you know, the mom and pop stores um, like my friends um, who are struggling to make payroll. This is somebody who is there to make sure that the rich keep getting richer um, and that everybody else is left to fend for themselves. And you're not taking corporate donations, correct? I am taking zero corporate PAC donations. I am taking zero fossil fuel money. Hell yeah. We love that. (laughs) We love to see it. We love to see it. And we're succeeding. We're succeeding in making this happen. And we need more people in Congress who do this because who else are you going to be beholden to? Right. And so you were taking, you know, Kate, you were talking about this at the top of the hour uh, or when we first started this conversation about, um, you know, Republicans were in it for climate change, um, for we were all calling it global warming back then, right? Uh, and one of the reasons this stopped, one of the reasons that, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s, before we can actually really get traction on some of those policies, was because of the influence of fossil fuel money, because of the influence of corporate money that came in to stop those policies from happening. 
right? And so we see the undue influence of corporate money has literally brought us to an existential crisis with the climate crisis. And if we allow it to continue, um, we're doomed. Completely. The, uh, yeah, you know, the people like the Cokes and the Mercers really flooded the market with their money and, you know, funded universities uh, hiring professors to quote-unquote question studies about the validity of climate change um, and kind of create a new generation of uh, climate quote-unquote skeptics. And it sounds like, I mean, when I say it like that, it sounds almost like a conspiracy theory, but it's true. It's, you know, it's been documented. That's what a lot of dark money... um, and, you know, shadow corporations in this country are expressly trying to do is undermine climate science. And I mean, now I think what's even more insidious is a lot of like the greenwashing that uh, that we see these huge corporations uh, engaging in to try to make themselves look a little bit less nefarious and it's just, it's, it's all ghoulish. So I really commend you. And I hope that uh, for not taking any fossil fuel money, not taking any corporate PAC money. And I really hope that that because, and I I think it is kind of becoming the standard, um, especially among progressive candidates. I, you know, we have talked to so many candidates who are running, who are not taking um, PAC money, not taking fossil fuel money, um, corporate PAC money, because I know PAC just means political action committee. I know that they're not all PACs are created equal, but corporate PAC money in particular. But, um, yeah, I really hope that that, that that becomes kind of, uh, necessary for entry to the democratic party in the future. Um, because I think that if we are who we say we are, if the democratic party is who it says it is, I think that, that's the kind of thing that it should be encouraging. No, absolutely. I agree with you 100%, right? We need to make sure that when we say these are our values, that we live those values and that we don't just go, well, these are our values, except when times get hard. And then, you know, and then we fall back on, you know, corporations and we fall back on this. I mean, I will say, I think Citizens United is one of the worst things that has happened to American politics. Totally. And we need to do everything we can um, to minimize that influence. And I think move to amend, which is, you know, one of the pledges I've signed um, is absolutely necessary. If it takes a constitutional amendment um, to move that back, um, it absolutely needs to be done. And the only way we're going to do this is when we have more folks like me who are going to be in Congress who are not taking corporate PAC money from the beginning. Um, And I think that's crucial. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. And, uh, you know, just also taking a look at your platform, you you do support uh, a lot of other things that we love. Uh, Medicare for all, um, you know, is a, is a really important issue that we've talked about on this show. Um, I guess just really quick, like from your perspective as a scientist, how would having Medicare for all help with this pandemic response? For for me, you know, so I actually worked for pharma for three years. Um, I was doing research for a while. I worked and went as a clinical educator um, for pharma, really saw um, 
the profit motive from the inside, right? And drug development. Mm-hmm. And I went in there actually, you know, somewhat idealistic, thinking that there there could be some good that came out of it. And it came out of it, and I lasted just about three years, and that was it. Um, not because I didn't find really good, smart people working there, um, but because I realized that this is not this is not sustainable. This is not a tenable way with which we can actually um, deal with healthcare um, at the end of the day. Single payer system, Medicare for all, is something that is so necessary to us in our country, especially the richest country in the world that we talk about, right? Where we need to take care of everybody. Um, it's 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 been necessary before the pandemic, after the pandemic, uh, or in the middle of it, as we're talking about. Even in my district, which is supposed to be you know more affluent, again air quotes here, um, and with folks who you know have good jobs and good insurance, imagine the air quotes there as well. Um, and they're still paying an insane amount in terms of deductibles. Um, when folks in my district are, are actually coming to me, these are the conversations I've been having where people are saying, you know what, my hours got cut, my job is in jeopardy, or I lost my job. And oh my God, what am I going to do about health insurance? And really understanding much more viscerally than they did before why our jobs and our healthcare should not be tied. Um, And thinking about, you know, if we had Medicare for all, we would have so much better care, so much better coordinated care. Um, And, you know, when I was talking about testing and tracing and all of that, people would not be worried. People would be going and doing the right thing for public health and for themselves um, by getting the testing done, by making sure that they were taking care of things um, as they need to, when they need to. And not worried about um, needing to pay medical bills and therefore going to their jobs, even if they're sick or even if they can't afford to be. I mean, all of those things, there is a sense of security and freedom and of not being so vulnerable that is hard to put into words, right? It's like, I I will, you know, in some ways, um, akin it to growing up poor. So I grew up with not very many resources and it took me a very long time even as an adult to understand that there's a whole level of thinking that happens when you grow up secure uh, and not having to worry about money that, you know, it's hard for me to even get used to. There's, I mean, to this day, I still feel this, you know, urge to this, this insecurity, um, this, you know, this feeling of, oh my gosh, what, you know, what, what's going to happen next and this anxiety um, and it stays with you and not having medical insurance and, you know, not being able to take care of our health has the same kind of insecurity. I think none of us really knows what that freedom will feel like and what that security would feel like. And that is tragic. I am a hundred percent in agreement with you there. Um, we are almost reaching the end of our time. And I guess I just want to ask you, uh, is there anything important that you would like to tell our listeners about that we have not asked you about yet? Um, I would say that um, I think that what I'm trying to do, and I think what we're going to do in New Jersey five is to make sure that we are electing real Democrats um, to Congress, that we cannot be, complacent. We cannot be um, accepting of, you know, somebody with just a D after their name that doesn't actually fight for the kinds of things that we need to fight for. Um, And this is particularly true today, right? It's been, you know, today, 
I, I woke up to news of the things happening in Minnesota, uh, the protesters, the the despair and the anger um, that drive the protests, right? That the the systemic racism that is boiling over um, folks who are being shot for standing up for Black Lives Matter. Um, the fact that we still have black and brown communities, particularly black and community, black communities who are, which are worst hit even more with this pandemic crisis. And the fact that we don't have enough elected officials who stand up against hatred, who stand up and actually are trying to do the anti-racist work that we all need to do in all of our communities, I think is untenable. I think that if we really want our society, if we really want to rebuild our society with the opportunity that we have left to do, we need to elect leaders who are going to actually do that work and who are going to represent the people. And we cannot, we cannot be okay with the status quo. So, Absolutely. I, I, I can't agree with you more about that. And I've been, you know, the events, especially of, of the last week, um, in regards to the violence against, uh, the, the continual violence in this country, uh, systemically against, uh, black Americans in this country. And also the fact that I've really just been horrified by the fact that I, I, it, it seems that the minute that a lot of our conservative white elected officials heard that the pandemic was disproportionately affecting black and brown communities. They breathed a sigh of relief and that is, and they felt less compelled to kind of take it seriously and, um, and offer a a robust response. And I think that's, that's why we've seen a lot of pushing to reopen certain states because the essential workers, a lot of the time, the people who are on the front lines of this are not white and affluent. Um, So I think it's really essential to elect more people like you to office. And I know that there are a lot of people who are really disenchanted with the electoral system writ large uh, at this point. And I can empathize with that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is if we become complacent about these things and if we decide that voting doesn't matter to us anymore, Republicans and people who have terrible interests are still going to be throwing tons of money behind all of this and they are going to be showing up to vote. Yeah. Um, so especially because they don't believe that COVID is real. So they'll be there. They will be there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I was saying, you know, like, I think probably there's, um, I would say there's a good percentage uh, of our listeners who would not describe themselves as Democrat. I don't know how I feel about that. I'm, I'm a registered Democrat, but I mean, like, like many people, I am fully disgusted with the direction of the Democratic Party. But I still, you know, I still think that it's really important to have people uh, in office like yourself who, you know, are going to be strong advocates for Medicare for all, for the Green New Deal, uh, for criminal justice reform, you know. So 
I guess, yeah, I would say even if you don't feel like the description of uh, Democrat applies to yourself, definitely check out this campaign. Um, and how can people uh, learn more about you? Um, you can go to my website, artifacongress.com, and Arthi is spelled A-R-A-T-I. Um, and so we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on you know Instagram. Uh, we're not on TikTok, so please don't look for me there. Uh, my 14-year-old has threatened me if I to to not go on TikTok. So <laughs> I think I think it's for the best for everyone. I'm not on it either. If if it's any consolation, uh, but it's great. It's great to um, have as a hold on your um, teenager. Just you know, free parenting advice. Apparently, threatening your teenager with embarrassment works. Is a time you know a time honored tradition. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Artie. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, and we wish you the best of luck in your campaign. Thank you so much for having me on, and I really appreciate it. I think that um, progressive voices uh, need amplification, and you all do such a wonderful job of doing that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land, land is mine.